Have you wanted to start a business but can't come up with an idea that you were in love with? You aren't alone. Todd Randall was in a similar boat. He knew he wanted to be an entrepreneur but didn't have the light bulb killer idea that a lot of other entrepreneurs have. Instead, he got into a franchise business and learned how to operate as an owner. He's gone on to own and operate a number of different franchises and is now optimizing his lifestyle through business processes. You'll learn how to get involved with franchises and the difference between being an owner-operator and just being an owner. So without further ado, hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Silicon Alley Podcast featuring the Todd Randall. Are you interested in growing and scaling your business? Welcome to the Silicon Alley Podcast, where you'll hear from entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and top performers on what it truly takes to grow and scale a business. You'll walk away with actionable insights you can apply in your own business and life. Now to William Glass, the CEO and co-founder of Ostrich, and your host of the Silicon Alley Podcast. Todd, welcome to the Silicon Alley Podcast. Super excited to have you on today. You're welcome. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I want to start somewhere that's a little unique because I, I don't think I've ever had anyone on the, the podcast Uh-oh. who's a really big polo player. So <laughs> uh, maybe not the most uh, intuitive place to start, but I'm really curious. Yeah. Can you talk to me a little bit about polo and uh, what oh, that, how you how you got involved in the sport? Yeah, it's a little, it's a weird hobby and it's a very novel one too. Um, and people have misconceptions about it. So I'm, I'm always happy to talk about it. I, I'm a farm boy. I grew up in the country. Uh, dairy farm and horses and all that jazz. And then it's, I, I was pretty ambitious young uh, as a young man. So I went to the big cities and I've been, I've lived in big cities all over the world since then. And I just felt like I was missing, missing the country. And so in my thirties, someone introduced me to horses and, and I hadn't ridden in 20 or 30 years. Um, and I just fell in love with it because it had all those elements that I was missing. It was open country. Your cell phone didn't work. You were getting dirty. Um, it was physical labor. There's a there is a nobility about horses that only people who work with horses can fully appreciate. Um, and um, I fell in love with it. It's you know like any other passion. I have friends who surf and they you know they decide where their home is and they decide what jobs they take based on surfing patterns. And I always thought it was nuts until I got into polo and then I'm like, okay, yeah, it's a lifestyle for me now. That's awesome. That makes yeah. sense. What do, what do you mean about that nobility? I think that's a really interesting interesting thing. I, I definitely agree, but what like can you dive into that a little bit? They are magnificent creatures. Yeah, I think that they have a sense about them because they're prey animals, right? They have to be afraid of the universe at all times. They will give you respect if you earn it. And if you don't, they're really skittish. And so imagine that dog next door that comes over and wants to say hi, but is scared to death and you, you work real hard trying to earn his trust. Horses are like that all the time. And um, it's just, when I say nobility, it's like such an honor. It's an honor when a horse bonds with you because you become a unit. Like you get work done together and they're working animals. They enjoy work and they like to be led. And so there comes a point where they acknowledge you as their leader. And there's no other way to describe it except that, you know, you can't have it. You can't take it. Um, It's not something you can force on a horse. They have to give it. And that's the that's an ability part, I think. Got it. Interesting. So, yeah. Todd, you you end up in getting into polo in your in your thirties. <laughs> yeah. Like, was it just you know your buddy was like, hey, like let's go let's go play a polo game. You used to ride, right? Like, uh, there's yeah. I feel like there's a learning curve, right? Being able to ride a horse is obviously table stakes, but yeah. you know there's a whole lot more to it. Just imagine, um, you know, going out to play hockey with friends at forty uh, without knowing how to skate. 
<laughs> Yikes. Yeah. It's exactly, that's exactly what it was like. And I had been on horses before a little bit. Um, and I had a girlfriend in college who played, but it was just a novelty at the time. And I like watching her and clapping and wearing, you know, colorful pants. Um, and so when I lived in uh, San Diego, Del Mar is a big horse uh, town and they have a, a racetrack and, and lots of horse activities. And it's just one of those things where, you know, when you're in Wisconsin, it's normal for people to go out bowling on a Tuesday night because that's what people in Wisconsin do. And in San Diego, it's normal for people to go out and do horse events. And so someone invited me to come out and they said, hey, you're a you know, farm boy. Why don't you come out and get on a horse? And it scared me to death. And I had so much fun. I was I was hooked. Man, it was something. That's awesome. Come now, try it. Yeah, I'm, I'm interested. I've only ridden a horse, gosh, a handful of times. It's been a long time since I did, so I don't yeah. know. <laughs> I, yeah. I'd have to uh, definitely uh, sharpen up my skills there. <laughs> For sure. So, Todd, you um, talk to me a little bit about your background, right? So you now you've sure. you've built a number of businesses. Um, you're an entrepreneur. You've built companies in a way that you've classified as just owning your own job and and uh, mm -hmm. and not necessarily uh, optimizing from a lifestyle perspective. But can you talk to me about your journey? Because you spent a good amount of time in the corporate world before transitioning into entrepreneurship. I sure did. I was uh, I, w I started as a pharmacist. I, I wanted to be a professional. I enjoyed being an expert at stuff. It was the quickest way to kind of enter the world. Always knowing in the back of my mind that I had an itch for business. It was interesting to me. And I tried to run a few businesses out of high school and college and stuff that were miserable <laughs> failures. Uh, but I went to corporate and I, I did well there. And because I thrived there, I just stayed in it. And I probably stayed in a little too long. And in my mid-30s, I realized that I was on everyone's radar for general management and People seem to have a lot of faith in me to run their companies, and it kind of gave me the confidence to look around. And I think some of your listeners will really identify with this because I had friends who bought and sold businesses for a living, and I had friends who were in venture capital or private equity or for second, third level funding, et cetera, uh, because I lived in San Francisco and New York from time to time. And they, the way they evaluated deals was so foreign to me because they had capital. And I think this is something that people forget about the small business owner. I didn't have an idea for a company. I didn't have a Rubik's Cube in my back mind. I didn't have a software platform that was better than the companies I was with. Like those are the normal ways that people branch off. They've never started a company before. It's just that they realize that they're managing a product that their parent company doesn't want anymore. And the parent company is either going to discard it or they're going to sell it to a competitor. And they step up and say, hey, me and my buddies will take it if we can negotiate a deal. I didn't have anything like that. And I was looking for years thinking, oh, I'll find my exit. And I didn't have one. And so I talked to friends about it and they're like, yeah, what kind of internal rate of return do you want? Are you considering NOI? What's your investment threshold? And I'm like, no, 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 no. <laughs> you don't get it. Like, I'm just Todd. Like, I have a half million in my IRA and that's me. And they didn't, they didn't know how to help at that point because that's not how, so especially software companies, which was my specialty, that's not how software companies are built. People come with an idea, they ask for money, they get funded for a little while. If they do good, they get the next round of funding. And I didn't have one of those. So I thought, well, I'll do professional services. But it wasn't interesting. I was just trading time for money. Um, and then I went to, you know, training wheels. I, I essentially asked around and found some businesses that were for sale. I started with a franchise and got my feet wet. And after I had a little bit of confidence, then, you know, I could be more creative, right? Because I started a franchise and went well, so I opened up more locations and that went well. So I started a gym and that went well. And 
Um, eventually, you know, I've had construction companies and spas and gyms and um, I did some, uh, I did a professional services firm for a little while and ended up brokering a few businesses. Um, and now I coach for fun because I, because I can, you know. That's awesome. Yeah. And I, I appreciate you sharing that time because I, I feel like I've had a number of conversations with people that are interested in entrepreneurship, but they don't have, to your point, that big idea. They yeah. don't see a better way necessarily that a company can do something. Or if they do, they don't have an interest to go start and solve that problem. But mm -hmm. they know that they want to do something more entrepreneurial, but don't necessarily know where to start. Yeah. And I think, you know, the other option that you said, which was going, that you tried was doing the professional services, because that's something that, great, like I'll just trade time for money. Um, yeah. And then you ultimately ended up finding these other businesses and franchises that you could you could dive into. So what did you learn throughout that that process? Right. Because, I mean, it's, it's easy. We just kind of glossed over it really quickly. But yeah. like, there's a lot of insights into each pieces of the puzzle that we just talked about. Yeah. Um, I, the biggest lesson for me is that these skills are a science, not an art. Um, so when I was a pharmacist, I thought I was, you know, I knew a lot about drugs. And then I got into the business side of it and realized that um, just being a pharmacist didn't help me sell to pharmacists unless I knew the products and the margin and the sales component. And so I had to learn new skills for that, right? And then I started managing a team of people who sold to pharmacists. And I was appalled that my bosses weren't good salespeople and they weren't pharmacists. Until I had, until eventually I had their job someday, and I'm like, oh, oh, I, yeah. I mean, these are the the skills it takes to run a team are different than the skills it takes to sell something, and the skills it takes to run a bunch of teams is different than the skill it is to run one team, etc. And so when I got into franchising, I was ashamed because I was a big shot when I was whatever at corporate, and I'd go to parties and people asked what I would do, and I would go on and on and on. I, I was that guy at parties, right? Really proud of what I did. And then I went and I bought one little franchise and I, I didn't want to say anything about it. It's like, well, I just bought a franchise. What? What did you say? What do you do for a living? I just, I just bought a franchise. And I didn't think it was interesting. And so six months later, right, after, you know, uh, working with the city to review plans and edit uh, build outs and negotiating, you know, a million dollar lease with a landlord, that was a lot of money to me at the time, right? And uh, after getting my first clients and negotiating a franchise agreement and, and you know, literally building the space and then running the staff, like I realized I was learning a lot of skills. And so I started to have a little more pride in it. And more than anything, running any business, right, is, is, is a people business. You have to relate to your customers in a special way and offer some unique proposition. Um, and you have to relate to your staff because they're the ones that do that when you're not around, right? Yeah. So most, most of the lessons, I think, were people. But in the meantime, I learned how to, you know, the difference between funding it with your own money and then eventually I got investors and then, you know, eventually I used uh, lending. Um, those were all interesting lessons, too, that I would have never learned thoroughly watching other people do it. That makes sense, Todd. And to your point, there's so many different ways, right, that you can you can start a company, build a business, even getting a franchise, right? Using your yeah. own capital, investor capital, mm -hmm. focusing on lending. Um, mm -hmm. And this is all stuff that it's hard to really understand until you're in it. You mentioned something where you said shame, which I thought was really interesting. Where yeah. you can can you dive into that a little bit? Like, why did you why did you feel that way? Because I and I and I and I can to, for clarification i can i feel similar where it's like i started a company and we haven't really done much and so it's like yeah. i don't really want to talk about it so but yeah. what was your experience with that shame yeah i realized the first two or three jobs i got i went to people and said look i don't have all the requirements that you're looking for 
for this position. I want this job more than anyone else that has it right now. And because I'm going to be proud of it. Like to sell a million dollar robot to hospitals for drugs, that's sexy. You don't understand how much I want to do this job. Um, and six months from now, you're going to have a really high producer because of that. And so I always thought that pride and job was a key component of being successful at it. And then I realized I really wanted to run a business. That's what I wanted. Like that was exciting to me more than anything, but I couldn't think of my own business idea. And so to borrow, like I thought I was borrowing someone else's idea, right? Um, I didn't think it could make very much income. I, I was surprised actually with how much income I could make from it. And I didn't think I was a quote unquote real business person because it wasn't my business. Now in the end, what I learned is that many, many large businesses in the United States are franchising a brand from somebody. Um, and franchises don't provide everything, right? They essentially have something worth the value. Like for instance, when I had, um, I had some spas called Massage Envy. And after four or five years of doing a bunch of marketing, I realized that the number one reason why people came to visit us is because they had already been seduced by the brand. They wanted to go to a Massage Envy and they just checked the internet to see where the closest place was. And so there was a value to me to carry that flag and there was a value to me having it on my business card instead of saying, hi, I'm Todd, I'm a local entrepreneur. I can say, hey, I'm Todd, I own a local Massage Envy franchise. And there was the pride came back when I realized that I was running an actual business. The other people that had franchises around me, some of them were not as successful as I was. And so I took pride in the fact that I ran a business in my own way. I ran it with personal freedom. I ran it to much more profitable standard than the folks around me. Um, and I ran it with a standard that, you know, a risk mitigation standard that was far beyond my colleagues. Um, I can't believe the, the amount of risk tolerance that young entrepreneurs have. It's crazy for me. <laughs> well, what do you mean by that? Like what, can you, can you give some examples <laughs> from a risk tolerance perspective? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. Um, can I, yeah. Um, there were some some entrepreneurs, you know, uh, once they own their business, uh, they have all kinds of aspirations of making a million dollars. Um, and the, um, the, the other thing that they aspire to is to be the boss. They want to be the boss and they want to make lots of money, right? Well, that comes counter to paying taxes. <laughs> so you talk to some young business owners and they spend all their trying time to, uh, trying to avoid taxes as opposed to trying to grow revenue. Um, and so I did run into situations sometimes where people were constantly trying to hide their income, just, just in, in my end, it's a waste of time, to my personal opinion, um, because you're not growing the real value of the business elsewise, or they're not insured properly, um, or the way they treat their staff is really short-sighted. Like I got, I was in a business that was pretty staff intensive. I had, you know, 100 staff for this one business at any given time. And in California, there's, there are some class action laws that make it very hard for businesses with lots of staff. And I got hit with a couple class action suits that were essentially just copycats. Other people that had businesses like me didn't keep good records. And so they thought, we'll just sue everybody. And so they literally, class action lawyers, sued all the businesses that look like mine in the state, hundreds of them, right? And what they wanted is they wanted the people with money who were afraid of losing it just to cop out, right? Yeah. Here's a lawsuit with my total risk of whatever, a million dollars. Here's 200, go away. And they weren't focusing on me because I wasn't a high net worth individual at the time. 
Um, and I also didn't know this. I had extremely clean records. I had good insurance. I had good attorneys on, on retainer. Um, all my records were in order and I followed the laws and kept the records separate where they're supposed to and everything. And so if it came down to it, by the time I met with the attorney and they realized I was a terrible prospect to take advantage of, <laughs> I would have got on it. But it scared the hell out of me. It really scares the shit out of you when you're a young business owner and people come at you with this ammunition. And so I looked around me and it's, this, this is really where I learned this, right? Because all my colleagues got sued at the same time by the same class action attorney. And so we met in groups and panicked together. <laughs> that was an interesting uh, group counseling session, right? And I realized how poorly they kept their records and how poorly they kept their staff and how at risk they were. That if, if this attorney came in and did a real document request from them, they their exposure was in the hundreds of thousands and millions of dollars. It could put them all out of business. And so they were panicking for legitimate reasons. I was panicking because I was just scared to death. It's the first time everyone's knocked on my door and said, you owe me a half million dollars. Right? So I think yeah. that's an example of where, you know, young business owners, I think they, they're a little loose and sloppy and they don't realize that those kind of things can shut them down in the end. Yeah, no, I think that's a great point, Todd, and not yeah. something that you typically think of when you're starting a business is, no. is, uh, is lawsuits and having proper insurance and keeping records. You're more focused on yeah. you know, the cool idea or the problem that you want to solve or, you know, learning, yeah. as you said, new skills. But that's that's yeah. really important and can be a huge, as you said, risk to the business. Yeah, I was never really an operator until I owned my own businesses and having the franchises was a way to me operationalize my experience. So I just had to practice and do it myself. And then, as they say, you know, you, you haven't learned anything until you can teach it. Right. So I ran the businesses myself because I was interested. And then when I had a process, I would hire someone and teach them to do it without me. And if they couldn't do it very well, then I knew my process was shit and I'd have to redo it. Right. Um, in those years, like I would never do those years again. <laughs> right. <laughs> In, in the same way that people would say, I would never sell door to door again, or I would never, you know, um, go for VC funding again. Like it was just such an experience that it's worth it the first time you're in it because it's so dang exciting. Um, I wouldn't do it again because it was too much work, but, but I learned so much there that I can help coach other people through it so they don't have to, it doesn't have to be as painful for them as it was for me. No, that's that's awesome, Todd. And that makes a lot of sense. What would you say from an operations perspective, right? Talking to entrepreneurs, people that are just starting out that have never run a company, like what do you where do you start, right? Because huh. there's yeah. there's a lot and that's maybe a too a loaded question <laughs> and a no. large one. But like thinking about some of the, the things that you learned and now that you that you teach others from an operations perspective. Oh, some of these are going to be boring, but, but save people so much heartache. Uh, the first thing is just keep all your records. I'm astounded when I give clients advice on, um, oh, okay, well, they don't really have grounds to um, to ask for your deposit back from your landlord if you all you have to do is show them this record, right? And people are like, oh, what's that? I don't, I don't, I didn't keep it. I probably had it here somewhere. Like, no, no, just scan everything and keep it on a Google Drive, you know. That's one important thing. As far as operations go too, you, you have to have some kind of auditing and monitoring process or you just don't know what's going on in your business. I can't tell you the number of times when I was a young entrepreneur that I would turn on the cameras at night and see what the heck was going on and was appalled at the kind of behavior that was going on when I was not physically in the building. Um, and the more you audit and monitor, the less you have to. That's the thing about managing large teams. Interesting. Do you have any examples of, of like 
situations that arose and how monitoring, auditing that was able to help correct that behavior? Yeah, there's lots of things that aren't people's fault, and and but they are yours, <laughs> right? Okay. Like there were times where cash flow, like restaurants, I'm sure is this way too, right? We had uh, we managed a lot of cash in one of the businesses that I had, and for me, it's easy. I document it because I know cash, you know, walks out of the building the, the minute you stop. But my staff didn't appreciate that, and they would document sloppily. And what ended up happening is I would stop in for a routine visit, and I'd walk and look around and tell people you know, thanks for all your help and stuff. And then I would go count the safe and inevitably it would be off and we'd sit down and try to track it down. And they were in a panic every time. And if I just audit it more frequently, we would never be off. Right. And we had, we had people walk off with computers and laptops and equipment and, you know, people have used their vehicles for their own personal use and driven them a very long ways, um, locked the keys out of the car and bent the door to get back in them and then showed up on the lot and pretended like some, you know, it's just like there's so many things that do happen like that, that if you just monitor on a more frequent basis, like if I had a good mileage log for that truck and I knew where it was every night, they would never take it to Alabama on vacation. Like it just wouldn't have happened. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. It's like yeah. those little things, right? You, yeah, you've got to build, build those processes so that that way things like that don't happen. Yeah, yeah, operations, like I said, it's not exciting, but if you go through the pain of what bad operations presents for you a few times, you, you won't do it any other way. And this is a good thing to get a mentor for or a coach or what have you. You know, if you haven't run a business before, like I, I um, shiver at the thought of me running when I was in, I went to Europe on an expat assignment and my job was to evaluate the market for our technology division. And we had about $5 billion in that division, billion with a B, right? And they trusted me because I knew the customers and I knew the business and I was multilingual and I was a clinician. I just had all the right components. So I went over there and wrote a business plan that required an acquisition of a $350 million company and a team of 20 or 30 to start and partners in five different countries and stuff. And they said, okay, great. If we go forward with this, will you run it for us? That's terrifying. Like if I would at the time, because I'd never run a business before and yes, I'd managed teams before. And yes, I had managed in a complicated, maybe corporate structure before. So those things I, I may have been skilled at, but to, to run a business where you're really responsible for it out of a, you know, out of the gate like that, without some of this, you know, the crucibles of running a little franchise, that, uh, yeah, that scares me to think if that if that would have been my path. <laughs> <laughs> that makes sense, Todd. Now, earlier you talked about, you know, different ways to, you know, that you had acquired franchises, right? So you mentioned, yeah. you know, personal savings, you mentioned investors, getting a loan. Can you talk about that? Because I think, you know, I, I know yeah. a couple of people that are listening to this have started to go down the franchise route or have an interest in it. Yeah. Um, can you talk yeah. a little bit about that? Because I think that's something that's, Again, not not obvious. When you're in it, yeah. it makes sense. You can see those, but like, how do you actually get involved in a franchise if that's that is the way that that uh, you want to? And I'll, I'll make my first really provocative statement too, if that's all right. If it's not too yeah, early, go to ahead. <laughs> okay. So, um, I've heard you ask another podcast before. Um, you know, what's a, what's what do you think is one of the smartest money investments you ever made? And I'll tell you what the one of my strongest investments I ever made is uh, from my first franchise. I took three or 400 grand out of my IRA to start the business and paid all the penalties and forego all the compounding gains that that would have between now and 65. And it's one of the best investments I ever made. Right, so you're going to have to dig into that. You're going to have I'm to, gonna have to explain that. that. <laughs> right. Because the thing is, 
all my other options, like the biggest mistake you can make as a small business owner is to run out of cash. And cash is just not very available. Um, when you're a small investor, you think to yourself, gosh, how much does money cost? Well, my credit cards, I pay 16%. And at the bank, the bank pays me 2% on my savings account. Therefore, money has a value somewhere between 10, you know, 5 and 15%. Now, people that run private equity firms and stuff know differently. But as a small investor, you may or may not. And so you might go to friends and uncles and family and stuff. I need a loan. And I'm willing to give you 10%. And the problem is that you, unless you're in their shoes, it's impossible to understand how, how poor of an opportunity is for them. Because if they have a million dollars sitting around, they don't want to make 10% on it. A million dollars can command a premium return, or it can command a very low risk return. And you're offering them neither. Yeah. Right? That You're not giving them either one of those. And so if you're starting a business on your own, I had a half million dollars in my uh, IRA at the time. If I took it all out to start the business and then something came up where I needed 100 grand, I was, in de I was dead meat. Right. And so I took more out from a savings account uh, from an IR from a uh, 401k and I paid all the penalties on it. It was, it was ridiculous. It was 20 or 30 or 40 percent or something like that. But it was my money and I didn't owe it to anybody. And it got me through the period and it turned me into a business owner. So I think, uh, yeah, big risk, expensive. Right. But in the end, I now I own my own business. And I can do with this business anything I want. And what I did is instead of trying to make that business a billion dollar business, I ran it for what it was. So that one was turning over a couple hundred grand a year or something pretty quick out of the gate. And I just doubled down. I went down the street and I opened up another location, used the same management team, used all the same processes I had, and I essentially doubled my income, right? But this time, instead of using my own money, then I use investors, hmm. right? And I th these are tactics that people who start companies all the time, they know are all available to them, but to a young entrepreneur, it may not, it may not be obvious. And so the first one I started with my own money so that I had a platform, something that was all mine. At no point did I owe anyone for that business, mm -hmm. all the way up to selling it uh, last summer, right? Um, and that gave me all kinds of freedom because if I had a bad month, I just left the money in the account. That makes sense. Yeah, I mean, you, you essentially, yeah, you you use that, and that's your tuition to become a business owner, right? That's yeah, you yeah. Don't need to go get um, an MBA, <laughs> and, right? You're, and you're and here's the other thing it did: it provided me three years worth of data to show that I can run a business. So now I had a growth in revenue, I had a growth in profit, and now I can go talk to banks, and now I can go talk to my friends and show them that I'm a successful business owner. And it's an entirely different discussion now. I have cred, right? absolutely. And so I went, I was intending on getting lending for that second business. But if you'll remember, this was in 2012 and okay. um, it was right after the capital um, crunch and uh, banks were held to the super high standard and they needed to build it up their balance sheets. And so they just didn't want to loan to small businesses and I couldn't get lending in time and I'd already signed the lease. So I had payments coming up. So I went to all my friends and I showed them to my five best friends and I showed them my success rate and I wrote them an agreement that they couldn't say no to. And then I had um, investors for the second business. Got it. That makes sense, Jeff, being able to use the data from the first business and then and then going from there. Yeah. And, and it flowed, right? Because the next thing I know, I, I opened a gym and I went to a bank this time and they could see that I'm a successful business owner. They could see that I have assets. Um, they see that I have investors that I have pleased and not pissed off. Um, and at this time now, I'm available for SBA lending. 
right? And so I started to build tools. Now I have options. I can use my own money if I want to. I have friends that I have, you know, had successful investments with. Now I have bankers that like me and those bankers over time went to other banks and now I have multiple banks that are options to me, right? And then, you know, eventually you learn there are other tricks to the trade. But those tricks to the trade aren't really available to people that don't have a little bit of financial resume. Like when, the last business that I bought, I went to the seller and I realized that he was in a position where he, he might carry some of the sales price to me. And I negotiated with that him and, and it worked out. But I think as a first time business owner, I'm not sure I would have had that option. That's tough. Yeah, that makes sense. It's it's kind of like, so it sounds like, first off, you made some good financial decisions when you were in the corporate world, right? You had to build up a good nest egg, which gave you the opportunity to yeah. go invest that into your business. And then once you got into the business world, you almost started from zero, right? No credit yeah. from that perspective of, can you do this? You built up a successful business, were able to get investors and then go through the bankers. So it's very like a similar yeah. process from an individual and then from you know a business owner operational level. Yeah, there were skills that I just knew I needed to learn. And so I, I practiced and got better at them. And to, to be honest, I, I failed at them a lot in the beginning. But the lessons are, you know, they're, it's a double-edged sword, right? Because to fail sucks. Um, but when you fail, you, you do learn the lessons more thoroughly if you're careful. Um, Absolutely. So can you share really some of those later. mistakes that you've made, the failures that you had that ultimately you know, led you to, to the success that you've had? Like any, any ones that stick out in particular? Yeah, I bought out all my investors for the franchises right before the pandemic. That was a huge mistake. Uh, so I owned them 100% right, right before they went to zero value. <laughs> <laughs> that one's a timing thing, right? That's a, that's yeah, just I know. It's so hard to anticipate that kind of thing. No, nothing really jumps out. I think from a working capital perspective, it's just always better to have more. I was really concerned about having more than thirty or fifty thousand dollars laying around because I felt like I wasn't being used, using it properly. And I talked to a lot of clients or young investors who are in their twenties, especially or young thirties. And if they have fifteen thousand dollars in an account, you know, their dad told them they had to invest it, and they're so concerned about making the money work. And for young business owners, you have to fight that temptation to make your money working for you because you need money available. Like inevitably, there will be a time where someone sends you a bill for $30,000 and you can't imagine how you could pay a bill that high. And so, yeah, working capital, working capital. I think I've made that mistake before where I got too tight and then almost, almost, you know, got in big trouble for it. <laughs> that makes sense. That makes sense. Todd, how do you define success, right? You've, you've built up a number of businesses. You're now helping other entrepreneurs with their companies. So like, what does success look like for you today? Yeah, I have the luxury of defining success in a way that a lot of people don't. Because I grew up really poor. Um, my my parents had three kids and then went to school, so we lived in a trailer, you know, on one retail clerk's income for four or five years. And so all my life, I've I've done better than that, <laughs> right? Um, and so I feel grateful for all that stuff. And there were times where uh, things got tight. And as long as I have, you know, warm shower, I never look at the bill when I go to a restaurant because to eat, it stresses me out. Like, I just want to eat what's good for my body and I don't think about how much it costs. If I can do those two things and I have security, then I don't need much more. Now, that might sound weird coming from a guy who, you know, plays polo for a living and goes to the opera in Paris twice a year. But those things are valuable to me and I save up for them and I go and I don't think about it. Um, Honestly, when I go and stay at a hotel for travel, I stay in Marriott Courtyards just like any other business travel in Fairfield Inns if there's one nearby. 
um, because that's not important to me. And so because I'm able to, my mindset is such that I'm grateful for everything over you know, a, a good meal and a hot shower. There are times where I've had much in excess of what I need. And I'm able to cut back all the way to that line in order to use capital for other things. Like for instance, I had a point uh, six or seven years ago where my businesses, it wasn't anybody's fault. The businesses just took a weird nosedive for three or four months and I didn't have what I needed to take care of them. And I thought, okay, well, I've had a long business and I can get lending to, to cover and I've looked into bridge loans and stuff like that. And I didn't find any good options. So I took everything out of my apartment and moved it into storage and bought an RV and I lived in it for a year. Now, I found ways of making that fun and interesting. Like I lived on a friend's farm and rode horses all day and stuff like that. But um, it was a pretty ballsy decision that I could only make because of the way I view money, right? And so this is a long way to answer your question is that for me, um, my financial success is about the, having the freedom to do the things I want without stressing about it, right? So I really do look at the opera in London and Paris, and when I find a show that I want, I just plan a weekend and go. And that's a really expensive theater visit, right? <laughs> and, I, and I do you know, spend money on trucks and horses, and you know, next week I'm going to Morocco for a week to play with some friends in Tangier, and that's not the kind of thing that everybody can afford to do. But on the other hand, in some ways I live really frugally because I've, just, I've noticed the difference between what, what I value and what I don't. So that freedom is what I strive for, and that's why all my businesses I could be making more money if I was in running it day to day, but I am leading each company. I am not operating any of them. Love that. And there's a, a few different tangents that, uh, oh, that, yeah? that we could, <laughs> that we could go down. Um, you know, and I think first that makes sense really being able to show what's important to you and cut out the things that aren't. Yeah. Um, and then also when you get into a position where you know, a lot of a lot of people experience lifestyle creep, right? They start making more, they mm -hmm. have that experience, they get nice yeah. things where that would be really hard to go from your apartment to moving into an RV for a year. But again, when you've got that kind of North Star of what what is valuable to you um, and what's important, then you can make those tough decisions. And it doesn't seem as as out yeah. there as as yeah. uh, as it should. It was a dumpy RV, by the way. <laughs> was it? <laughs> it, was, it was really a POS. I um. And, but I, I allowed myself, you know, some luxuries that year that I didn't before, because if you put it out in a spreadsheet, it was just, you know, it was a way of making myself feel better. You know, I lived in a, a bad trailer park on a bad side of town because I could. I was single at the time and and um, I was traveling a lot anyways. And so I gave up a fantastic house um, overlooking the ocean, moved everything in and did that. And it was just an, a way that I could put another 10 or 20 grand into the business every month if I needed to. And it got me through a tough time. So, yeah, I love that. Now, you said something uh, just a second ago that on about the difference between you're leading your companies versus operating them. Yeah. We might have already covered this, or it might be obvious, but can you just clarify what you mean the difference between leading and operating? Yeah, it's, it's not a subtle difference, I think, in a way, uh, because for me to run the businesses means I know the customers, I operate, I'm there daily, um, I know the staff, um, uh, well, and in the businesses that I develop, I always try to get in there and run them myself for a while so I know what's going on. And then I find somebody that can run the business on their own. And so if I disappear for a month, they may have questions at the end of the month, but they can make literally all the decisions for the business. And sometimes that takes six months and sometimes it takes four or five years, um, depending on the scale of the business and 
you know, what an operations manager would cost in that. But it's better. Like, it's a pragmatic choice if you have multiple businesses. It may be my greatest success as an entrepreneur is have, finding that edge of a practical, pragmatic way of stepping out of the business so that it can scale um, to a net gain for you. Like, it's possible that by being in the business, I would have got a different liability policy and we wouldn't have had that $3,500 claim, right? So $3,500 is a lot of money. That's a big expense. That's a bad deal. But on the other hand, if I let my manager make the choice this year and realize that I have this $3,500 expense, next year I can coach them to make an A-minus decision on liability insurance. And maybe we don't have that expense. And the year after that, I can coach them to have an aid uh, decision on it. And in the meantime, I've just opened up myself to go open an ancillary business or renegotiate with a landlord or, you, you know what I mean? Like there's so many things that I could be doing that could be a half million or million dollar bump to the business. Um, and I'm taking myself out of the $100,000 decisions every day. Absolutely. No, that makes sense, Todd, right? Yeah, you're, you, and and I know it's I know it's not passive, but when people think of like, oh, I want to start a business yeah. or have that mm -hmm. and have passive income, and if I own it, then I don't have mm -hmm. to do anything. I mm -hmm. think there's a big nuance to operating where is very far from passive, and then leading still not passive, but more to your point where you have the ability to remove yourself from the day to day decisions and focus on the larger decisions, and as you said, yep. focus on other businesses growing, scaling those. Yeah. Now, in order to do that well, there's a handful of skills that. Are you know, is required. And there's a certain amount of monitoring that you need to do. And then there's some, you know, trust that you just need to develop with your team. And there are, gosh, I mean, I could go through a hundred points of lessons that I learned in that whole process, but you do have to let go in order to let people learn and realize that those are the costs of building a business like that. Because you could be, you know, a laundromat owner. That That's a choice you could make where, most laundromat owners are a family-owned business, and you, when you're in there, you always see them. It's the same people every day, seven days a week for 15 hours a day. Um, and from what I hear, those, they can be very profitable businesses. It's not, it's not my choice. That makes sense. Right? I yeah. would rather have eight less financially successful businesses and the freedom to go take a week here and there or to do some renovations around the house. Um, and you realize that if you let the businesses scale like that to have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight businesses, even if they're less profitable, you know, individually together, they can scale to a point where the freedom allows you financial, you know, time and financial freedom. Absolutely. That makes a lot of sense. What advice, Todd, do you have for anyone that would just starting out, right? They're, they're trying to figure out where they want to go, whether they want to create their own business, they want to go down the franchise route, like where, where should someone start? Small steps, practical steps. I think that uh, people get caught up in what's our brand going to be? Um, do we have to license content? Um, uh, what are the colors on our logo going to be? And the question is, have you sold one today? Because if you haven't, just go sell one. Whatever you have, go sell one. Because you'll learn so much from that interaction from designing the sign and deciding which you know, which state you should be living in or which, which partners you need to cozy up to for an exit. I promise you, if you build a company that's interesting, the exit takes care of itself. Like, yes, it's a good idea to have an exit in mind when you create a company, especially in your space. Right. There are a lot of people that walk off knowing full well, I'm going to go start this company and my acquirer is going to be X or Y. And they have that plan when they leave. But then the minute you open your door and build something, you have to build you have to build something. Yeah. You got to you got to let the rest of the stuff go and realize, you know, 
who's my customer? What do they need? Have we built it? Do we have the team to build it? To, to build it? Do I have a relationship with that person? Do, are they loyal to me? Um, do they have the phone that they need? You know, do we have licenses for software? Like get in and do the practical stuff every day. That's my advice. That makes sense, Todd. Love that. Now, I, you've, you've actually answered two of the questions that I usually like to end with, yeah. which is you've kind of touched on the relationship with money when we talked about success, right? You, yeah. you kind of explained how you focus on the things that matter and kind of cut out, cut out the things that don't. And yeah. you've already hit on your best, best money uh, decision investment you made, which was pulling that money out of your IRA and 401k to go yeah. get that first franchise. Mm-hmm. What would you say is the, the dumbest money mistake that you've made? <laughs> I had too much of my my net worth wrapped up in the value of my businesses. Um, just because you're an entrepreneur doesn't mean that you don't need a savings plan. Um, this is such a boring, you know, financial mistake to make. But I think that you can get caught up as a 22 year old or a 28 year old thinking I might be a billionaire and I need every ounce of cash that I have right now in order to to follow that path. And the fact of the matter is. If you take $100 out and put it away every week, you'll never notice it anyways. And then it's all gravy someday. Like, hopefully you don't need it, right? But I've made that mistake. You know, I had, uh, I lost more than a couple million dollars of value during the pandemic because my businesses were just disproportionately affected. And I I wish that I'd, I wish that I was a little more diverse at the time. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense, right? You want to obviously invest in what you're doing, but at the same time, it makes sense to hedge and make other some other traditional investments and so many entrepreneurs you have to be your own person so many advisors will tell you that you have to live and breathe what you do and you have to never quit and blah 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 like we've heard this language over and over again and i'm not sure that's great advice for everybody i'm not sure i'm not sure it is you know the advice that i heard when i was 18 and 20 years old is in order to be a billionaire you have to work all day have a vision never quit never stop always be positive, like all the kind of, you know, guru type stuff. And what I didn't hear is most people aren't billionaires, (laughs) right? So the question is, do you want to be a millionaire or a decamillionaire someday? Because that might take a different set of skills. It might require some conservative financial management. It might require some diversity. It might require an education. Like most billionaires didn't go to college, but I think since most people are not going to be billionaires, maybe it's a good idea for us to go to college. Maybe that's not such a bad idea, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think that's an important point is we pri- not we idolize, right? The big, you know, the big names, the, the Elons, yeah. the Zuckerberg, the people like that, that, mm-hmm. you know, have billions of dollars and started when they were 20 and dropped out of college. But to your yeah. point, that's not the norm. And there's a ton of there's a lot of happiness and success mm-hmm. that you don't need to be at that level to achieve. And it's to your point, defining what that is for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Todd, this has been a, a lot of fun. I really appreciate you sitting down. I want to leave you with uh, any final words and please let the audience know how they can connect with you outside of this podcast. Oh, sure, yeah. I think the easiest way, I run a, a coaching program for young entrepreneurs and the way that I can converse with them is on a Facebook group called Real Business Coaching. So that's easy to find, you know, facebook.com forward slash real business coaching. And I'd be happy, like, it's not my primary source of income. It's the way that I teach. I'm, I'm a university professor in it. So if you have any questions, feel free just to reach out to me there or on LinkedIn or something. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you so much, Todd. I really appreciate it. And thanks for sharing your story. Pleasure talking to you. Thanks, William. Thanks. 
on your way out, please share the podcast with others. It's the only way that the community grows and others hear these incredible stories from entrepreneurs and top performers. And of course, pound that subscribe button so you get notified when episodes drop every Friday. I'm William Glass, CEO and co-founder of Ostrich, and of course, your host of the Silicon Alley Podcast. Have a very profitable day. You got no time to waste, but still you hesitate.